0: To the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Coach and Worship Team, and good morning, Church. You can go ahead and have a seat. It's good to see you all and it's glad to see so many of you back that have been uh, in quarantine and it was great to get to see some of you back again. And uh, this morning uh, we kind of started something new where uh, probably at least once a month we want to take a moment uh, as part of our worship and we want to highlight uh, one of our missionaries and as we want to pray for them. Um, And in fact today, uh, if I can look around uh, right here on my uh, right, uh, Vincent Samantha from Zambia are here with their family today. And today, today and today only, Vincent turns 50 years old. So happy birthday, buddy. And in fact, I, I want you, I'm real excited about what's going to be happening uh, over the next several months. Uh, go to our website uh, under missions. Uh it's been hard to travel. In fact, we had to cancel all of our trips this year and or this past summer. So we're putting together some virtual trips where, man, you think, man, there's no way I could ever afford to go to, uh, say, China or Spain. Well, we're putting together where we're going to gather together, working with those missionaries, and we will be able to virtually go and be there with them. In fact, today after the service, we're meeting with a uh, Vincent, Samantha, and part of our missions team. And we're going to be working on how we're going to be, how we can do that where we'll be able, uh, with their help, to go to Zambia. And we want to take everybody to get to see what they're doing and what's going on there. Uh, So be looking for that over the next uh, several weeks and months as we begin planning uh, for that. Uh, And as Clint said earlier, I guess we'll find out who prays more, our teachers or our parents about what's going to happen maybe over the next uh, several hours. Uh, so time, time will will tell. Um, well, this morning, I want to try something different. Uh, but uh, as I was thinking and planning about this, uh, I really had uh, some strange flashbacks because I want to kind of begin today setting the stage. I want to kind of, maybe virtually, if that's the term I could use, is to take us to Ephesus. About two years ago, I was able to go there and uh, uh, be able to visit, and uh, so I want to show you some pictures. I want to kind of describe some stuff, but I had these flashbacks of where my dad uh, would go to, say, Israel, and he would come back and have like 700 slides. I'm not talking pictures. I'm talking slides of his trip, and they'd bring out the projector screen and the slide projector, and... It's different when you're there. It's really hard when you come back because, you know, he'd say, okay, this is the Mount of Olives looking to the east, click, and here it is to the west, click, and here it is to the south, click, and you know what's coming next? and it's like, they all kind of look the same, and nothing, putting a bunch of people in a room, in a dark room with slides with the click of that machine, I and mean, that's just calling for a sleep coma, Uh, So I hope that doesn't happen today. I promise I don't have 700 uh, of them, only a few. But go ahead and turn to Acts 18. That's what we're going uh, to look at. I want to kind of just set the history of the church of Ephesus. The next week we'll intro the book, uh, look at the first two verses. And once again, I hope you're, if you haven't already, you'll begin reading uh, through this book uh, that we're going to be walking through over the next, uh, in fact, we'll go all the way, I believe, to uh, Mother's Day. Um, so here's where we'll begin. This is kind of a the picture. This is modern-day kind of Turkey, just kind of where it's located. It's located on the western side. You can see there it is a harbor city. You go today, you wouldn't think that because the as much as the sea has retreated. But it was a harbor city, this city with the, in g and see the Mediterranean to the south there, it was this city, it was a major city in the Roman Empire located now in modern-day Turkey. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time that we're going to be looking at. They estimate that about 250,000 people lived there. And so here's where you'll see kind of the lay of the land with the seas in the background of where this city is located and uh, what's going on. So, picture this city. It, it's on built on this this hillside. You would come in um, from my right and moving down to this main quarter, and they called these the Angoras. But I want you to take note of what's built on the side of that hill, and that is a theater. And from that theater is an Angora uh, called the Harbor Way that leads all the way to, or eventually one day did, it led to the harbor there, where ships would come in, commerce would happen. You would make this long trek up the uh, harbor way, and what you would be looking at is this massive theater. But when you come in, the first thing you notice is the library. In fact, this is the library still standing today. It was the second or maybe the third largest outside of Alexandria. It was a major a focal point of this city. But in the heart of this city was this massive theater. It's a little hard to see, but you're standing on the Angora Way, the Harbor Way. You're looking and built into that massive. Now, they didn't have cranes back then, uh, but built into this mountainside is this massive theater. I mean, looking at that, thinking of what that took, the labor and the materials over you know, 2,000 years ago, To build that, looking now from the aerial uh, view down, is this massive structure. This theater is an important part of history. But what this city is most known for would be the Temple of Artemis. This is a recreation of what they think it was. This is one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple to Artemis. But here is basically what they think is left standing of it, even Just today. But I want us to now go to how this church began in Acts chapter 18. Let's begin looking at verse 24. It says, Now there was a Jew. His name was Apollos, a native of Alexandria. And he came to Ephesus. Oh, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in Paul's second missionary journey, he comes from the seaside and he stops in Ephesus. And Apollos is the very first pastor of this church in Ephesus. And this is Apollos. And maybe you know when Apollos. Apollos was this guy, I believe, very charismatic. And man, he was one of these guys. He was on fire and he was excited. He had all the excitement and zeal you would want in a pastor. But he lacked something. He lacked experience and he even lacked knowledge so uh, Priscilla and Aquila who were, were uh, very grounded in their faith they come and they hear Apollos teaching and preaching and mean they loved his excitement they loved his zeal but there was still something missing so what do they do they take him aside and they felt like he he, he just didn't have the whole picture so they begin discipling Apollos so even pastors, even preachers, they need discipling. And Paulus was one of them. He had all the excitement, he had all the zeal, but he needed some time, he needed some knowledge. And Priscilla and Aquila are the ones that came and provided that. Well, then you turn to chapter 19, and it's where we'll begin picking up in verses 1 through 7. This is now Paul's third missionary journey. This is the journey here where he begins in Antioch. And now he kind of goes backwards. He, he goes inland this time. Uh, he'll go through Tarsus and he'll Antioch. And then he lands in Ephesus. And he's going to spend about two years in this city. But while he's there, he encounters some disciples. It tells us in verses 1 through 7, who hadn't heard really the full gospel message and the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul do? He tells them about Jesus' death, his resurrection, And he placed his hands on them. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then look in verse 8. Speaking of Paul. And he entered the synagogue. And for three months he spoke boldly. For three months he was reasoning and persuading them. And notice about what? The kingdom of God. But when some, they became stubborn Continued in their unbelief, seeking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning with him in the hall of Thyranus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard of the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. So notice, this is what Paul does everywhere he goes. When he comes into a city, he begins in the synagogues. He goes to the Jewish places of worship. And for three months, day after day, he is now going now into the hall. But keep in mind what Paul keeps reasoning and trying to persuade about. It's not all the things that are going on outside. It's the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, God shows up in big ways. He says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even the handkerchiefs or the, the aprons in which he touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And the disease left them and evil spirits came out of them. But anytime this happens, anytime God starts doing amazing things through people, there's two things you can always count on. You can always count on copycats. And for some people to be upset. And that's exactly what happens. Because look at verse 14. This is crazy. It says the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. The evil spirits answered them. So they're trying to do what Paul's doing. And it says the evil spirits then talk back to the seven sons of Sceva. And they say, Jesus we know. Paul we recognize. But sons of Sceva... uh, Who are you, by the way? And it says, A man in whom had an evil spirit, it leaped out of them. It mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the evil spirit comes out of this man and whoops their tails till their clothes fall off, and the seven sons of Sceva run off naked. Well, it doesn't take long, you can imagine, for word to begin spreading. And when this happens, it tells us in verse 17, this is what was happening. People were saying the name of Jesus was being honored. In verse 18, it says, many believed, they confessed their sins and turned from their evil practices. They even took their evil books and their idols, it says, and they burned them. So many were coming, they were seeing what was happening, they were believing in Jesus, they were turning from their evil ways, even to the point of burning their evil books and idols. But not everyone is pleased. In verse 23, you read about a famous riot in Ephesus. There's a man named Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith, and you can imagine what his wealth came from. It came from taking and making idols and then covering them in silver. So if that's your livelihood, that's where your paycheck comes from, and all of a sudden a man comes in, starts teaching about the kingdom of God, people start then taking their idols and burning them, all of a sudden, something you love is threatened. And that's what happens. So look in verse 25 of Acts 19. It says, these he gathered together. That's Demetrius. With the workmen in similar trades, So he brings the union together. And he says, men, you know that from this business, we have wealth. And you see, and you hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, he's persuaded and turned away, uh, turned away a great many people, saying that God made with hands are not God's. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come and to disrupt, (coughs) but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. (coughs) And that she may be disposed of her magnificence. She whom all Asia in the world worship. Excuse me. (coughs) So you can see what happens. These people, they become Enraged, Because what they love and what they're worshiping is being threatened. So what do they do? They can't find Paul, so they find two of his companions. There's two men named Gaius and, <coughs> and Aristarchus. And guess what they do to them? They take these men and they drag them into the theater that you just saw. And it goes on to tell us that they dragged these two disciples in. But the the disciples of Paul would not let him go. They were so afraid Paul was going to lose his life that they stood in his way. They begged him not to go. So Paul doesn't make it into the theater. But when you read this account, this is what is so fascinating about this account. This man comes in teaching about the kingdom of God. Many people's lives are changed. Something that someone or a group of people love gets threatened. So what do they do? They drag them to the theater. But when you read through what is happening, it says that this theater, that it was full of confusion. In fact, it even says that most didn't even know why they were there. But they get to the theater, and they just get caught up in what was going on. They're following the crowds. And what you see is just, A mob mentality. It happens in a few, and it spreads to a lot, to where all of a sudden people don't even know why they're there. So Alexander tries to come and speak to the crowd, but look at verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, speaking of Alexander, for about two hours... Two hours, they cried out in one voice. They chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So for two hours, this one thing that happened spreads to the theater. Many don't even know why they're there. They're caught up in confusion. And for two hours, they begin chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the town clerk finally steps in and he quiets the crowds says, you know, what we need to do is really just take these men before the court and deal with it there. So the crowd finally gets quiet. Everyone then goes on about their business. And Paul then leaves for Macedonia and Greece. And that was Paul's last personal experience with the church in Ephesus. He's going to begin making his way into Rome. And in Acts twenty-eight thirty. It's where we find that he writes this letter to the Ephesians. But there's two things I want you to know about this city and this church. Um, Do you remember the the theater? And from the theater heading down to the sea was the Angora, or what is known as Harbor Way. Um, There's a practice in history (coughs) that tells us that went on during this time, during Paul's time. And it was a horrible practice. But it was something that was such norm, you wouldn't think much about it if this is the culture that you grew up in. History tells us that when a wife a mother would have a child, the midwife would come in, help with the delivery of that child, and in the evening when the husband would return home, The midwife would take this child to the father and present the child. child, If the father already had a son, perhaps, or if there's any kind of defect in this child, the father would turn his back on this baby. The midwife would then take that child to the Angora along the Arbor Way and leave the child in the evening. Soon as dawn would happen, slave traders and merchants would come in from the harbor and they would begin walking into the city before daylight and hear the cries of these children. They then walk over and look at this child and if they were useful to them, they would take that child and make that child maybe either a slave or even a prostitute. But history also tells us that as the gospel begins spreading through this city, Christians and believers would begin waking up early in the morning And head to the Angora. Listening or even into the hills. And listening for the cries of these children. They would then take these children into their homes. And raise them as their own. They would beat the slave traders to the children. Now with that in mind. Just listen to what Paul writes. To a church not too far away in Galatia. It says, I mean that, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, <coughs> we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That through Christ, we have been redeemed and we have been saved from the Angora. Lives not spared just to become slaves, but we have been adopted as sons and daughters of a king. And I believe this was a scene that Paul saw. And when he writes, his things have personal meaning. And I hope that's what we will see through the book of Ephesians. (coughs) But I have one final thought. Turn to Revelation chapter 2 that I want us to see about this church of Ephesus. Beginning in the book of Revelation, there are... Seven letters to seven churches, or seven churches are mentioned. And one of those churches you'll see in Revelation chapter 2 is to the church in Ephesus that we're going to be studying through this letter that Paul writes to them. (coughs) And notice what John says about this church. Man, he's got some great things to say. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And what John is saying about this church is they are doctrinally sound they know the truth forwards and backwards and they're disciplined i mean these would be good christian folks i mean these would be people you want as neighbors that you want to work with these are good christian people they know truth in fact look at verse three and i know you are enduring patiently you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary I mean these are committed christians men they're bold with the truth we need more of that but there's a but look at verse 4 he says but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore From where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. And John says that, man, you know truth, you know doctrine, and you stand hard for that, but you've lost your first love. And I can't tell you how much I needed that reminder this week. That this group of believers, they, they loved truth. They did whatever they could to preserve it and to stand for it. This was a group of Christians that were disciplined. They withstood temptation. They, they didn't give in to the ways of the world. But they lost their first love. It means literally, they stopped loving. They're smart, they're wise, they're disciplined, but they were not loving. They were committed to the truth, they remained doctrinally pure. They hadn't forgotten the most important thing, but they had forgotten the most important thing of all, a simple love for Christ that loves others. And he says, if you don't repent of that, I'm going to come and to take it from you. So this is a question I want to ask us. It's a question that Jesus asked Peter. Do you love me? That we would think about that question this morning. Do you love Jesus? And I think we're tempted to respond like the Ephesians did. That, well, yes, I do, because look at my track record. I believe in the Bible. I stand for truth. I'm faithful to to attend the church. I serve, I give. I mean, those are great things. And John wouldn't say, forget all the doctrine. But these things we should absolutely be concerned about. But when we ask this question, I think our tendency is to say, yes, because look at what I have done. But think about it. That doesn't work in any other relationship it doesn't work in marriage it doesn't work in parenting and Christ says it doesn't work in the church because think about when your children were born what did they do for you to love them nothing or you think about when you first fell in love it wasn't what someone was doing for you you just loved being with them because love based solely in what we do that is not true love so I hope we will wrestle with that question this week. Do you love Jesus? And I really believe Ephesians is going to help us with it, because guess what? The first half is packed full of doctrine, truth that we all need and need to be reminded of and to stand for. And the last half is how the truth takes root in your life and how you live that out where you are. But I want to end with this. Um, I want to talk about the events that unfolded this past Wednesday. When that happened, I did something I haven't done in a long time. I sat down and I wrote myself a letter. And then I sent it to my editor. And I said, can you help put this together? That it's grammatically correct and uh, not run on sentences. And it actually makes sense in actually reading it for us. And so I wrote this down, and I I purposely thought about each and every word. And so forgive me, so I'm going to read it. Uh, Because I was afraid if I didn't, I would get rambling, and then I'd just lose all that I was really trying to say. As I watched the events unfold at the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday, I could hardly believe my eyes. First, I am proud, and I consider it a privilege to live in this country. But what I've seen over the last days and weeks and months and even years is something that grieves me. Second, our country affords us the freedom to practice peaceful protest we have the right to do so within the boundaries of law and i applaud anyone that was there wednesday january the 6th that tried to stop those that sought to cause damage and harm and third when anyone turns to violence burns property vandalizes and so forth i would never stand with them That is not the way to bring about change. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, there are more appropriate ways to speak truth in love. Whether we are standing against abortion or racial injustices, immigration policies or child trafficking, just to name a few, this should always be done in humility and love. But what happened on Wednesday should grieve every follower of Jesus Christ. And it should be condemned. And I would say this about any group that crosses the line as we saw. But fourth, one of the saddest parts of the events was seeing and reading about some people. Some. Joining in and even posting about the events in the name of of Christ. There was nothing about the evil actions that I saw that represent the kingdom of God. Nothing. So what do we do? One, when we see others or we find ourselves motivated by such anger, we need to pause and to ask ourselves why that is perhaps in that moment the Holy Spirit would shed the light on the idols of our own hearts and we would repent. We should be grieved and we should be driven to pray as never before about such events. And there have been many opportunities over the last weeks and months and years to pray. But i leave you with this one final thought. I want to go back to the hours before the heinous actions in and around the U.S. Capitol. Just down the street, there was a large group gathered for a rally in support of the 45th president. I'm glad that people have the right to gather in peaceful support of their beliefs. And I pray we never lose that. As I watch that crowd gather and wave flags and chant together with such passion... I thought about what it took for them to gather there in the middle of the week. People were willing to take off work. To travel for miles and miles by train and car and bus and plane from all over the U.S. And they were there on their own accord with incredible passion. But then I had this thought. I thought to myself, Mark, what if you had half the dedication and passion as those people who were gathered in Washington, D.C., to share the hope of Jesus Christ with the people around you? What if you had half the passion and dedication to lead your family? What if you had half the passion and dedication to love your neighbor as yourself? What if you had half the passion and dedication to care for the widows and orphans? So we need to be asking what are we making much of in our lives? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ, or is it something or someone else? I wish we had half the passion and dedication and willingness to sacrifice for the greater things of Christ. And that, that is now my prayer. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.